Lights! Camera! Action! There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow And tomorrow's just a dream away Walt Disney World is more than just a place. It is a complete vacation destination where guests may stay as long as they like. And here, even a hotel is an adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Disney MGM Studios is proud to present W Radio. Your Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 256 for the week of January 8th, 2012. This week, we're on the trail of the Rocketeer as we look at this character connection in Walt Disney World. Recorded live at Disney's Hollywood Studios, Jim Corkis and I discuss not only the film, but tour the park as we search for props, details, and stories you may never have noticed that relate to the 1991 Disney film. Stay tuned for a few announcements before I play more of your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. In 1991, Disney launched a major new motion picture that was set to introduce, or maybe reintroduce to comic book fans, a new hero. A new superhero who, according to the film, looked like a hood ornament from an old automobile. And that new superhero was, of course, the Rocketeer. And speaking of superheroes, I've brought along with me to Disney's Hollywood Studios today a true superhero to talk about this sort of character connection to Walt Disney World. He is, of course, everyone's favorite, greatest, the greatest American hero, Jim Corcus, author of The Vault of Walt. Well, thank you very much, Lou. Rocketeer is one of my absolute favorite films. I don't want to hear from any of your <laughs> listeners who, who go, well, it's okay. It's a great uh, film. And, of course, The Rocketeer uh, takes place in uh, 1938 Hollywood. And, of course, what better place to try and find The Rocketeer is at Disney's Hollywood Studios, which is the Hollywood of the 30s and uh, uh, 40. So this is going to be just absolutely amazing. So today, Lou and I are going to play uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. We're on the trail of the Rocketeer because uh, actually there's some of his uh, footprints or jet fumes, I guess, uh, still left uh, around here. And the Rocketeer, of course, uh, Disney planned it to be their version of uh, the Indiana Jones movies. It was going to be a trilogy. And in fact, in uh, Steven Spielberg was interested in making the film. 
and um, but what happened is at that time negotiations were going on with the Disney company and so Spielberg didn't fight for it because at the same time Spielberg was uh, in partnership with Disney doing uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit but Steven Spielberg was interested in making The Rocketeer and so for those of you who love these podcasts we're going to be sharing um, some wonderful uh, uh, behind the scenes information some that you may never have heard of before because uh, I'm a real Rocketeer fan. And um, we're also going to be tracking down places that you could physically go at Disney MGM Studio, Disney's Hollywood <laughs> Studios, uh, uh, where you might be able to find some remnants of uh, that film and that character. And let, let's just talk briefly about the film, because I have a feeling a lot of people probably have not seen it. You mentioned Indiana Jones, and when... You look at the Rocketeer, there's a lot of Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark-esque elements in there. It's the 1930s. There's Nazis and spies, and uh, there's sort of a lot of action and adventure. And sort of, I think this is maybe Disney's version of that sort of Indiana Jones character that they were trying to, to introduce. And again, maybe reintroduce because he did originate in the comics. And uh, yes, Disney really was looking at this as... Uh a franchise, and, and you can tell even from the beginning of the the uh, project how uh, Disney was looking at that because originally it was going to be a touchstone film, which was going to be a, a little bit more adult in theme, and they had limited the budget to twenty five million. But Jeffrey Katzenberg absolutely went crazy. He said, "Look at all the toys we could make!" And so suddenly it became a Disney film. So a, a lot of elements had to be watered down a little bit, but also the budget just soared to 40 million in fact uh, at the end of the movie where you see the zeppelin explosion that cost four hundred thousand dollars to do (laughs) and they had to do it twice to get it get it right so for those of you who don't know about uh, the rocketeer this is going to be uh wonderful because you're going to be discovering him for the first time uh in 1982 a very talented artist by the name of uh, dave stevens uh, was go- helping out uh, a friend of his who owned a um, independent comic book company. Most of you are familiar with DC and and Marvel, maybe Image or Dark Horse. But in those days, basically, uh, DC and Marvel were the two biggies, but there were a couple of independents. One was called uh, Pacific Comics that operated out uh, on the uh, West Coast, and they had a comic book that was going to, to print, but the artist had sent in the story, and it was too short, so they needed a couple of pages to fill out the rest of the book. And so Dave Stevens was a, a friend of the publishers, um, and so just as, uh, you know, for fun, he decided to do, well, I'll, I'll do up a little uh, uh, thing, and uh, uh, he, he, Dave Stevens loved uh, uh, old-time uh, movie serials, he loved the 30s and and uh, 40s. He loved classic uh, uh, pinup art like Betty Page. And um, so one of his, one of his uh, uh, favorites was uh, King of the Rocketmen, Commando Cody, uh, the movie serials from the 40s. So he designed a character and he came up with the name uh, Rocketeer, based literally on Racketeer. So, so this, this was fun. And thought, well, this is fun and then I'm going to go back to, to my real job. He, he was a storyboard artist for uh, movies. He actually storyboarded a, a sequence for uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark that was never used uh, in the film, but it was great, and Spielberg always wanted to get around to using it and adapted some of that uh, for Temple of Doom. 
he also uh, was involved with uh, animation. Dave Stevens worked at Hanna Barbera for for uh, for a while. On, on believe it or not, the the Godzilla Saturday morning <laughs> TV series. Terrific artist. He did this, and okay, people got this. They loved it. They went crazy. When's the next installment coming? Whatever. But again, since it's an independent comic book company, they can't pay a lot. And uh, poor Dave had to, you know, make his bills, whatever, by doing, you know, the, the regular work. So he could only get to this periodically. And uh, eventually came up uh, with uh, uh, four installments. And people are demanding a full comic book, all of this. But Dave literally was a very slow, precise artist. Uh, he would uh, redo a panel several different times, just trying to get the right composition, the lighting, the the whole bit. But Rocketeer became uh, literally a cult favorite. People love this. Uh, the storyline was uh, basically a, a, a down on his luck uh, 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 pilot, a stunt pilot by the name of Cliff Secord, who looked almost exactly like Dave Stevens because Dave Stevens was posing in front of the mirror and all of that to, uh, to get that. And his uh, friend, Peavy, a, a mechanic, are, are working at uh, uh, an air circus and, by golly, um, uh, they discover uh, uh, some gangsters and all had, had stolen this uh, uh, prototype rocket pack, jet pack, and they, dis- they discover this, and uh, Cliff Secord has a girlfriend, uh, Betty, who looks like Betty Page, who is a real favorite of Dave's, and um, all sorts of things uh, 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 happen uh, where basically Secord has to put on the rocket pack, uh, Peavy has to come up with a helmet for him and a couple of things so he can, can rescue the girl and all of this, and, and uh, Stevens thought, okay, and, and, and you know, this will be it, that'll be the end of it. Independent production companies were coming to him. They wanted to make uh, a Rocketeer movie, but they wanted to make it in black and white like the old movie serials. Um, people wanted more stories, uh, all of this. Uh, and so uh, basically, um, the comic started in 82, uh, and uh, Stevens went around and, and hit up all the places. Uh, one of the last places they went to uh, was Disney. And Disney took a look at that and thought, you know, we could do this. However, uh, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg were in charge, and they didn't like the idea of setting it in 1938. Uh, They wanted to update it. And, in fact, Michael Eisner thought that instead of the classic Rocketeer helmet from the comic strip, uh, from the comic book, uh, that it should be a NASA space helmet, you know, because this will appeal to a wider audience and whatever. But uh, Stevens fought that and uh, fought a bunch of other things. And in order to get the film made by Disney, uh, Dave unfortunately had to sign away um, a lot of rights because, again, Disney is a business. Disney is investing money and in, in all of this. They need to make sure that they're going to, to get for their stockholders, you know, a, a good return. Um, but uh, poor Dave saw very little money uh, from the project, which was very sad because he did eventually pass away from uh, leukemia, uh, which was a very sad loss. But Rocketeer, very popular cult f- comic, and those who saw it absolutely loved it, but it wasn't as famous as Superman or Batman or uh, Captain America, all, all of that. It, or even Indiana Jones. Or, so again, it was very, or, yes. And I think part of the reason why is I think 
you know, Cliff Secret, he was a good guy. Like, he was a right. really, really good guy. He didn't have that dark, a little bit of a dark side to him, that Eddie side that an Indiana Jones did, a Han Solo did, yeah. or even a, a Batman mm-hmm. did. Again, Matt, Batman had come out just a few years earlier. Yeah, basically he's a hero by accident. <laughs> and it's interesting you mentioned Indiana Jones because Jeffrey Katzenberg said this could be our Indiana Jones, and the reason they decided not to update it was the success of the Indiana Jones movies because they said, look at the money the Spielberg films are pulling in. Audiences will accept this time period. Uh, Stevens later went on to do uh, another uh, uh, four-chapter story of uh, uh, the Rocketeer in uh, New York, which uh, introduced villains like uh, Lothar, this this huge uh, uh, villain. Um, But, you know, so much more could have been done uh, with the project, but they all thought it was going to springboard from the film itself. The film was released in uh, June 1991. In fact, it was the first film to premiere at the El Capitan after Disney had spent all that time rehabbing the entire theater. And there was a whole carnival out in front of the, the street, and you got special Rocketeer tickets that you could could use to do some of these uh, uh, attractions. A big uh, uh, Hollywood premiere, and they figured this would just, uh, you know... Uh, kickoff. There were promotions with uh, Pizza Hut. There were all sorts of toys. There were candies. There was coloring books. There, you know, they were all set for this to to just really take fire. But uh, one of the things that unfortunately uh, happened was when uh, Rocketeer premiered. Within a week of it, uh, both uh, Terminator Two premiered and also uh, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And those were the big blockbuster movies. And so even though uh, Rocketeer in its first release pulled in uh, uh, over $40 million, so it covered its cost, uh, it was considered a disappointment because as today, everybody says, oh, it only made uh, $200 million. What a disappointment, you know? (laughs) It's like, wait a minute, what is this? Well, that same philosophy happened in, in those days. But rem- and, and it kind of, you know, if you look back at it, and if you look at the film now, it looked like it had the formula for success. Again, sort of that, that time period, uh, the characters, very similar to what they had done with Raiders of the Lost Ark. You had a, a pretty star-studded cast at the time. Billy Campbell, who some of us uh, who are children of the 80s may remember from Dynasty, was in it. Um, Alan Arkin, Jennifer Connelly, the oh-so-lovely Jennifer Connelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Servino was the gangster. Timothy Dalton who is not only 007, I remember him, this is going to date me and really show what a geek I am, I remember as Prince Baron from Flash Gordon, another bad guy in, a, in an old-style movie, uh, and of course Terry O'Quinn, who many of us know as Locke from Lost. And I laugh, Lou. You say, what a wonderful cast. I laugh at you. <laughs> I love the cast. I think the cast is absolutely perfect. I, I think Jennifer Connelly has never been lovelier, never been funnier, never been... You know, She's got that 1930s sort of look to her face, too. You know, and she was like about 20 at that, that time. And Billy Campbell looked exactly like Dave Stevens, looked exactly like the character in the comic book, all of that. But, you know, what Disney did is Disney did not want our unknowns. And so they offered the part to Kevin Costner and then Matthew Modine. And they auditioned people like uh, Dennis Quaid, Kurt Russell, uh, Bill Paxton... Emilio Estevez. But, Lou, we've talked about this. Can you guess who 
Eisner and Katzenberg's number one choice in 1990 to play the Rocketeer, Cliff Secord was. Well, what was their number one choice? I'm going to let you deliver this punchline because they maybe did have a vision of what was to come of, of that person who, for Disney, would become their sort of hero for the new millennium. Johnny Depp. They were pushing for Johnny Depp from 21 Jump Street. Uh, and and I, would say, I think he's the one, and of all the people you mentioned, he doesn't have that same kind of look, that a Billy Campbell, that a Matthew Modine, even an Emilio Estevez or, or a Kevin Costner has to me. Uh, uh, sort of that, that rugged, you can see when his hair almost mm-hmm. slicked back like the 30s kind of look to him. And, and it's interesting they were looking at Johnny because at that particular point, Johnny Depp was trying to break away from that good-looking guy character. He was really pushing himself towards character. Yeah, that's really worked that well for him. He's not that good-looking guy character anymore. (laughs) Oh, and and coming up for Disney, he's playing Tonto in The Lone Ranger, and he's going to be Barnabas in uh, uh, Dark Shadows. Is there nothing this guy can do? But, you know, we talked about alternate casting. Uh, Jennifer Connelly absolutely love uh, her in that film, but they also auditioned uh, Sherilyn Fenn, who is from uh, Twin Peaks. Uh, Kelly Preston, who is John Travolta's uh, wife. Diane Lane, Elizabeth McGovern. Even Timothy Dalton was not the first choice. They offered it to Jeremy Irons. Scar could have been the the villain there. Charles Dance they offered the part to. Uh, Paul Sorvino, who I like as uh, Eddie Valentine, the the gangster, uh, that was originally written. The screenwriter said they originally wrote that part for Joe Pesci. Wait, Joe Pesci playing a gangster? Let me see if I can envision him in that role. I, I, I know. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's, that, it's that stretch. It's that, you know, oh, my gosh, doing something a little different out of the ordinary. Uh, even Peavy, uh, they offered that to Lloyd Bridges, who looked an awful lot and acted an awful lot more like the character in the comic book. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Peavy later, so I'll save it for that. But Lloyd Bridges with that. Uh, but again... Uh, Boy, I give credit to Joe Johnston, who is the the director. He just finished directing uh, Captain America and uh, both of the uh, screenwriters because they supported Stevens 100%. Stevens was there every single day on on set. And, in fact, uh, they used some of his uh, research material to... Uh, to recreate things like uh, the bleachers at the air show. And uh, Stevens designed the um, uh, the policeman shields, the badges for the policemen to make sure that they were uh, uh, in keeping with uh, uh, the period. And the thing is, is Dave took video, behind-the-scenes photos, all of that. He Does saved- he have a small cameo? Didn't he pl- wasn't he the person who played the German test pilot? He, he, he was. He uh, And... He did not not like being in front of the camera. Didn't, but how could you pass up the opportunity to stand right next to Adolf Hitler, <laughs> strap on a jetpack, and be blown up? And yes, that that is that is Dave Stevens, and he just absolutely loved that. Anyway, he had all of that material, and he put together a whole bunch of extras that could be used. There was a special edition of Rocketeer that was going to come out about uh, ten years ago. Never happened, and and I'm afraid one of my disappoint. I'm glad that Rocketeer is out on Blu-ray. One of my disappointments is there are no extras, and that disappointment is increased by the fact that I know that extras exist. You know, uh, uh, deleted scenes, behind-the-scenes footage, uh, all of uh, uh, storyboard stuff, and in fact, some Stevens artwork that nobody, even the best Stevens fans, have never seen. Uh, so that is there. And uh, again, 
remember the film is coming out in 1991. Uh, Disney's MGM Studios opened in 1989, so that's the proper nomenclature there. And so they thought they were going to make... They're going to tie in uh, Rocketeer. My gosh, it's the same time period. It's Hollywood. This We're going to promote this on, on both coasts. We'll, we'll have the big premiere uh, on the, the West Coast on uh, June 19th. But by golly, you know, this film's going to just take off at the box office. We've got to incorporate that into the park. And in fact, uh, we're in one of the first locations where the Rocketeer... Uh, was incorporated. We can hear the background noise now, and we're in a location, and I just discovered the name of that location. (laughs) Muppet Square. That was the official name of this area when it opened in 1991. Let let me ask you a question first, because before we talk about the Rocketeer in the studios, maybe we should mention the studios being in the Rocketeer, because the actual, the studios themselves were filmed Rather than sort of going out and sort of, or recreating on a soundstage, Grauman's Chinese Theater, they used the Grauman Chinese Theater that, that was here in the studios for a scene in the film. And we're going to save that. That's a tease <laughs> oh, from Lou. That's a tease from Lou because we're going to save all of that information and that story as our final uh, blow off, as they say. Because we're just starting the trail of the Rocketeer for crying out loud, you know. So we, we gotta gotta start at the beginning. So this area right across from uh, Muppet uh, uh, Vision 3D uh, was called Muppet Square because, as we talked in an earlier Lou podcast, and all of you need to go back and listen because there's what over 250 podcasts now. Go back and listen to some of those uh, uh, podcasts back when Lou was like 15 years old. So. <laughs> Uh, But this area was called Muppet Square, and right across from Muppet Vision 3D, and I I think probably some people who are listening uh, remember that, uh, across the street was not Pizza Planet. It was a a building, a warehouse building, called the Rocketeer Gallery. And Lou, you said you even went in and saw that, right? I remember uh, going when I was a young lad, same height that I am now, uh, and going in... Because I, I loved the Rocketeer when it came out, and I remember I got the sense that you were sort of walking into an airplane hangar, and there were authentic props, uh, some in glass cases, some hanging from the ceiling. There was a, a giant uh, airplane that they had used in the film as well, and lots of really cool things. Because that's what you know. This is remember this is back to Jim when the studios was a studio, so you got that sense that you were walking into uh, almost a museum of props that were used from the film. And we were talking as we walked through before trying to remember where uh, the glass case was that held the five different miniature rocketeers and the different versions of the helmet, uh, some of the things that were hanging from the ceiling as well. And I, I, and I think the glass case with the helmets was pretty much uh, in the center there. And, and you're absolutely right, because this area where Muppet Studios was, was going to be was considered the back lot area. So this was the working area of the studio. So, of course, you'd have the props from the film. And we were talking about that case, and that case had five different... Uh, Rocketeer uh, helmets. One was a, a early prototype. Uh, one had a uh, removable fin. Uh, because remember, during shooting, you're going to need different helmets for different reasons. You had a stunt helmet. Stunt helmets were uh, a little wider and had bigger eyes. So you have uh, uh, the stunt man has a more peripheral vision, um, and it's also wider. So you, for instance, you can put it on a skydiving helmet. Whatever it can rip off easily. Um, and they also had the hero helmet. And for those of you who are familiar with uh, movie terms, 
hero, uh, the, the hero item is the item that the actual actor wears and you see in the close-up, so it's the best done thing. And um, Lou was telling me he remembered two of the little uh, Rocketeer miniature uh, uh, figures, the, the puppets that were in there. They also had a, a Lucky Lindy. They had uh, Malcolm, who uh, was uh, riding in the, the biplane. And uh, because in those days, 1991, uh, CGI was still just beginning. So uh, Rocketeer was done pretty much the old-fashioned way with, with miniatures and, uh, you know, uh, green screen and uh, all of these things in order to, to accomplish this. And, yes, there was uh, uh, Howard Hughes's auto gyro in there and... Uh, uh, the spruce goose and and we were just talking that there's a funny connection about that isn't there yeah we were talking about sort of that that disney connection uh in the parks and even outside the parks and uh we were talking about sort of uh, the disney connection to that plane and how that they had actually purchased the spruce goose uh again very long on you had actually told me something else that they had purchased in sort of wanting to create attractions and exhibits sort of outside the theme parks. Uh, yes. Uh, at Disney at one point uh, wanted to build a, uh, uh, a second gate out in Southern California. So uh, they were talking about one right across the street from uh, Disneyland, which was going to be called Westcott, which was going to be the West uh, Coast version of Epcot. Uh, but Anaheim was giving them problems with zoning and things like that. So uh, Disney, a lot of people think in retrospect, maybe for leverage, decided that they were going to build uh, Port Disney out in Long Beach. And so about 1988 or so, uh, Disney owned and operated the Queen Mary out there. So there were Queen Mary ghost tours, all that. And right next to the Queen Mary was a big dome with Howard Hughes' Spruce Goose. And... Um, so uh, when Anaheim saw that uh, Disney was committing money down there, uh, suddenly uh, um, they freed up a lot of zoning restrictions and uh, tax benefits and all that. So a second park could be built right across from Disneyland, but it didn't turn out to be Westcott. It turned out to be Disney's California Adventure. Uh, the Port Disney project was abandoned, and by 1993, uh, Disney had sold off uh, uh, stuff like uh, the uh, Spruce Goose, which... Uh, I believe was moved to Oregon at that point. But uh, again, Disney is very big with synergy. So in the comic book, the rocket pack had actually been invented by Doc Savage, you know, a 1930s, uh, 40s uh, a pulp hero, a, a genius of a guy, nothing this uh, man of bronze uh, couldn't do. But again, you couldn't use that in the, the film because now you're dealing with uh, copyright. I think Street and Smith... Uh, uh, own the, still own the character at that point, so you'd have to negotiate with that. And so they came up with the bright idea. Well, what other inventor is around in those days? Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. We could do that. And if we use Howard Hughes, what wonderful synergy. We can tie this in to the Spruce Goose in Long Beach. Because at the Spruce Goose of Long Beach, they even had a Howard Hughes impersonator, actually several of them, that would take you on guided tours through the Spruce Goose. And so uh, Howard Hughes um, uh, pops up in, uh, in the Rocketeer simply uh, uh, for Disney Synergy. And, and as you pointed out, yeah, uh, Locke. <laughs> is it what a fine actor he yeah. is too, and 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 I'm glad he and I'm glad Lost uh, really brought him uh, uh, some prominence there. Uh, 
uh, at that uh, particular point. But yes, the, the spruce goose, the actual one, the actual props were in here. And again, you have to realize, too, that in 1991, that was pretty exciting to be able to see movie props because uh, that was still pretty new. Now now we're pretty jaded with the Internet and, and, and all of this. It's like, you know, we've all been there, seen that, you know. Uh, all of that, but in those days, it's like, oh, that's what that looks like, and and I think a, a lot of us were also very surprised that um, uh, sometimes the lack of detail, or it was hung together with duct tape and uh, paper clips and all of that, but on the screen looked absolutely uh, magnificent. Well, of course, when the Rocketeer did not become uh, a huge hit in 1991, the following year. Uh, the building was redubbed uh, Studio Showcase. Some of you might remember that because they had some Rocketeer exhibits, but they also brought in, like, the big shoe from Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Uh, they had some Nightmare Before Christmas stuff, too, as I, as I remember. And then eventually, um, when the AFI uh, uh, Museum Showcase uh, came on board, this changed over to the Studio Arcade, and we can still see some... Uh, uh, images of those arcade machines in there today, and then, uh, of course, um, Pizza Planet uh, for that to happen. But I like your idea that this was like the big Rocketeer warehouse, the 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 uh, uh, airport there. So uh, good stuff, good stuff. But uh, we were just in there looking around with our uh, uh, high and low, high and low, and couldn't find any. Uh, uh, we thinking on our part, trying to maybe find a little reference to the old Rocketeer. Because every now and then you'll find, you know, a little submarine in a tree somewhere. Or maybe you'll find a hint of something for uh, from old attractions that were left behind. But this is very much themed towards the Pizza Planet arcade from the Toy Story films. By Gadfrey, Dr. Watson, you're a genius. You're an absolute genius. Why are we sitting out here in Muppet Square? Because there are little nooks and crannies where there may be those items. And in fact... On our walk over here, I think we discovered one, right? There are actually many places still in Hollywood Studios uh, that you can find, and maybe even one outside of Hollywood Studios that we forgot about. Ah, there's the... (laughs) (laughs) That we forgot about where you can still find remnants of the Rocketeer. And we'll save one of the the big ones for later on, one that is still uh, very prominent. But one that we had to go back and examine for ourselves because we weren't sure if it was still there or not was over at the Sci-Fi Dine-In. And, of course, we asked a cast member, and he looked at us like we often get here, Jim, like we have the collective three heads. But as we walked through, and again, if you walk into Sci-Fi Diner, uh, when you first enter that building, it's made to look as though you are sort of backstage. You can see sort of the facades that are built of the main dining room area, which is meant to look like a movie set, like you're outside in sort of Southern California at a drive-in movie. But if you go down the hallways to the left or the right, you'll see that they are uh, the, the backs of those facades. And in between uh, the beams that hold up those things, you might find little props here and there. And we always tell you to look up and look down. And if you walk down the left-hand side, about halfway through on the right, you'll find behind uh, a piece of plexiglass an old newspaper that says... That uh, it, it's the Los Angeles Examiner, and it says, who is the Rocketeer? And if you look at the date, it's October 15th, 1938, which is when the Rocketeer in the movie makes his first appearance at the Bigelow uh, Airfield. And I didn't even know that that existed in there. And Lou, by golly, as we were looking for uh, another uh, Rocketeer prop, 
He is the one who discovered that. I had no idea that that existed. It's very, uh, I think it's exactly the same. I'll, I'll have to really take another look. I think it's exactly as the same as the one that's framed out um, by uh, uh, PVs. And uh, as, as Lou said, you know, you have to look up, you have to look down. And we went in there looking f- because we knew that there was a uh, rocket pack. And by the way, rocket pack, jet pack, uh, jet belt, rocket belt are all synonymous. They all mean the, the same thing. They're used interchangeably. Uh, if you want to be um, uh, really uh, uh, specific in the movie, it's the X3 jet pack. <laughs> but uh, we were there and we were looking around and as Lou said... Uh, they looked at us as if we had three heads, uh, and we tried to explain we only had two. And um, as we were leaving, just out of the corner of my eye, I happened to glance up, and there it is, the rocket pack. So as you go in, as Lou said, to the left-hand side, and we went in there so that you'd be able to find it for yourself, uh, just before uh, the entrance into the dining area, uh, on the upper left is the rocket pack, and right across from that is the newspaper uh, in plexiglass. But, you know, we really can't uh, stay around. One of the reasons we went over there, too, is we wanted to get some rocket packs because we're going to have to rocket over to other places. So we're strapping up right now, and we hope that you junior rocketeers listening to this podcast, through the magic of the podcast, it'll take us just seconds to get to our next fabulous location strapping on turbines for speed fire okay here we go and he wonders why people look at us funny Well, Jim, I got to tell you, that was a very interesting ride uh, on the jetpack. Of course, <laughs> me riding on your back looked more like Yoda on the back of Luke Skywalker as we uh, we flew over here to the shores of Echo Lake on the corner of Echo Park Drive and Keystone Street as we sit in front of PV's Polar Pipeline. Okay, let me just get these bugs out between my teeth. <laughs> next, next time, we got to take a helmet as well as the rocket pack. You know, but, but as for that ride, I like it. And those of you who watch The Rocketeer, you know what that reference is. And if you don't, now's the go back and do that so you can uh, catch that reference. Yes, we're here at um, probably one of the most significant locations uh, of The Rocketeer. It, as Lou said, just uh, by the side of uh, um, Echo Lake here, we're looking at PV's Polar Pipeline. Now, when the park opened in 1989, this, of course, was Lakeside News. And... Uh, they sold uh, magazines and, and newspapers. They, they even sold uh, uh, old magazines, old life magazines from the 30s and 40s and all that. And they quickly determined that uh, people did not come to a Disney theme park to buy magazines and newspapers and, and old issues of Life magazine or, or uh, Saturday Evening Post, whatever. And again, so 1991, to, to tie in with uh, the Rocketeer, this was converted to PV's Polar Pipeline. And, uh, yes, in the background there, you can hear the, the uh, stop sign, go sign there for Echo Park Drive, Keystone uh, Street. Um, PV was a character. His, his name was uh, Ambrose Peabody. And the nickname was uh, PV. And the reason it was PV is because he was always peeved. He was always grumpy. He was always angry. Because Dave uh, Stevens, as I said, you know, based uh, 
Cliff Secord on himself, uh, Betty Page uh, was in there. Uh, PV was based on an artist by the name of Doug Wildy, and uh, a good friend of Dave's, and Dave was working uh, under him on uh, uh, Godzilla at Hanna-Barbera at the time. Um, Wildy is the guy who uh, created and designed the original Johnny Quest. Wow. Uh, he was also a uh, comic strip artist, uh, uh, comic book artist uh, in animation. But yes, he, he, he was notorious for uh, uh, being a little peavy uh, uh, for that. And uh, again, you know, a wonderful example of uh, uh, theming because we're seeing uh, uh, acetylene torches and... Uh, uh, tubs and uh, uh, tool cases, all of this, because uh, PV, of course, was uh, a mechanic and uh, somewhat of, a, of an inventor, uh, too, and has obviously invented uh, some wonderful uh, frozen concoctions for, for people uh, uh, to have. Now, a, a lot of times people come by here and, and it, it's closed up, but you can still see some references. Uh, you know, I, we, we're noticing people just walking by the um, uh, menus but if you get right up close stick your nose right up close to that menu what do you see Lou? You'll actually, If you look very very closely you'll see that they're actually blueprints and those are blueprints for the orish, original uh, rocket jetpack. And uh, th- that's why also at the um, end of the Rocketeer film that PV ends up with the blueprints again because again it was going to be a, a trilogy of movies so PV would would uh, come up with, uh, you know, another uh, rocket pack, another uh, uh, jet pack. And, and in fact, speaking of those, uh, if you look at uh, PVs when it's open, over to the left-hand side, you'll notice there is a uh, jet pack uh, from the uh, movie, and right above it is the uh, stunt helmet. And again, it's a stunt helmet because it's wider, it has, uh, uh, the eye-, eye lenses are much larger so the stunt person can see more clearly. And over to the right-hand side, uh, you'll see the schematics again for uh, the jetpack. Uh, you'll see a um, pennant for uh, the Bigelow Air Circus, which is where Rocketeer made his uh, uh, premiere in, in the movie. You'll also see a copy of uh, a frame copy of the newspaper, this uh, same uh, one that we saw uh, over uh, at uh, uh, Sci-Fi. So. Uh, and this fits in very well because, again, the film takes place in 1938. And, of course, this is the Hollywood of the uh, 30s and uh, 40s. And for those of you thinking of making your own uh, jetpack, there's actually <laughs> instructions on the Internet where uh, using soda bottles and cardboard and all that, you can, uh, and a little uh, uh, paint and uh, an X-Acto knife, you can make your own uh, uh, rocket pack. Now, the lawyer in me is waving his hands frantically saying, do not try this at home. WW Radio and Lou Monodello do not endorse trying to create your own jetpack out of soda bottle. Uh, ab- absolutely. And uh, uh, even uh, Lou and I uh, uh, sort of bent the law by having him uh, hitchhike on uh, my back. You should all have your own individual uh, uh, jetpacks. And, and by the way, you know, the, in the movie, uh, the premise was the Nazis were developing a rocket pack. And uh, by golly, uh, you know, the troops were going to wear those and were going to destroy everything. Uh, The Nazis really were developing a uh, rocket pack, but it wasn't for the troops. It was for their engineers uh, to go over uh, barbed wire fences or go over a minefield or go over uh, rivers where there was no bridge. 
uh, because, you know, you only had enough fuel, you only had enough power for uh, uh, short jumps. And after the war, uh, those prototypes were given to Bell Aerosystems and then just sort of disappeared. But in 65, uh, Bell came up with uh, that uh, personal jetpack that I think a lot of us are familiar with that um, uh, we saw in the James Bond movie Thunderball at the opening and also saw at Disney MGM Studios, which means that uh, we've got uh, to go to our uh, next location. Uh, So uh, should we risk taking uh, the the jet back? Because, again, you know, it it can overheat like an engine or... uh, uh, should we, we be moseying over there, Lou, to take a look at uh, a, a really uh, key destination? And as Lou teased uh, earlier, uh, a section that actually appears in the Rocketeer movie. I'm going to walk so I can get something to eat at Men and Bill's on the way there. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anytime you're ready. So we've wandered our way over to the Chinese theater at the end of Hollywood Boulevard, and we're sitting here in the courtyard, which is an exact replica of the original Chinese theater mm-hmm. out in Hollywood, California. Uh, and not only does the Chinese theater play a part in the film, but actually this theater itself, Jim, we talk about this connection to uh, the Rocketeer and sort of where we can find the Rocketeer in the studios. We can also find the studios in the Rocketeer, and it was actually this building itself. And uh, again, before we uh, start, we need to apologize to all of those who are listening to this podcast while driving because we are at the physical location, so you hear the drip, drip, drip of the uh, uh, fountain back there. So It's the soothing sounds of a waterfall in the background. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that. Um, but as Lou uh, uh, teased earlier, part of The Rocketeer was filmed here at... Uh, uh, Disney's uh, Hollywood Studios. Uh, basically, it was the very last film, uh, very last scene that was that was filmed. Uh, it started filming um, January fourteenth, nineteen ninety one. Uh, it, it took about uh, two weeks to to film it. Uh, those of you who are familiar with the uh, uh, film know that uh, uh, Cliff puts on the rocket pack and he's uh, jetting to the uh, South Seas. Uh, uh, club to rescue his girlfriend Jenny from the the amorous clutches of uh, uh, Sinclair. Um, on his way, he passes Grauman's Chinese Theater, and one of the things that the Disney Studios wanted written in was a scene which would uh, mimic the famous uh, handprint footprint uh, ceremonies in cement that's usually done in the uh, forecourt. Uh, originally, they were going to have uh, it. Uh, for Ginger Rogers and then for some reason uh, changed it to Betty Davis. I I don't know why. But basically, as Cliff is flying, uh, up on the top, uh, a searchlight um, uh, operator is startled by seeing a flying man because, remember, the whole thing of um, uh, Rocketeer takes place during the the period of about uh, a a day or two uh, uh, tops. Uh, So... He falls from the top of the Grauman's Chinese Theater. Cliff, of course, being the hero that he is, catches the guy in his hands and lands in the forecourt, but, of course, lands right in the cement that has been prepared, uh, drops off the guy, but has got to rush to get to Jenny, so he blasts off again, and uh, one of the onlookers comes and writes in... uh, 
uh, pushes Betty Davis aside, literally, and writes in the Rocketeer's uh, name. And uh, Rocketeer uh, opened uh, for general release. It premiered uh, at the El Capitan Theater uh, on uh, June 19th, but it opened in general release on the uh, uh, June 21st. And, Lou, what are we looking at right now? As we come into the forecourt, right to the far left, right by the fountain, we see... One of the farthest left and closest to uh, the top by the ticket booth, you'll see in a yellow square, is in fact the Rocketeer. And it's not handprints and, and footprints. It's the footprints of the Rocketeer. And right behind him, you can see those scorched blasts from the jetpack. And we can see the date, and the date is... June 21st, again, 1991, that date of general release of the film. And... Uh... Now, to add to that, in the uh, summer of 1991, uh, the fireworks show out here was called uh, Sorcery in the Sky, where you had the, the huge inflatable sorcerer uh, Mickey, which uh, the very first time I, I saw that, it was like, holy cow, when <laughs> Disney does something right, boy, they know how to do that. Well, to add to that, uh, as part of the fireworks show, they had the Rocketeer fly around... Uh, uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater here, and of course in uh, uh, you know the uh, same type of uh, uh, jet belt. And my gosh, I was so disappointed because um, the commercials that were running on TV, and uh, my our good friend Greg Airbar was was involved with those commercials. Literally saw a costumed Rocketeer character lift off from this forecourt <laughs> and fly right down the middle of Hollywood Boulevard. And so I was just so excited to see that. And it was like, oh, this guy just goes up a little bit in the air, a little realizing the, the danger because if, uh, you know, one of those engines go off or whatever, uh, you're not high enough for a parachute, but you're high enough to fall that you're going to hit uh, really, really hard. Um, so uh, you can put your uh, and uh, Lou and I were also talking about the, the wonderful uh, uh, footprints here in fact there are three uh, that represent living actors who are represented by audio animatronics in the ride as of the date that we record this so five yeah. years from now this, this, main, <laughs> this hopefully will still be accurate but uh, uh, as of right now the three actors and I never thought about this Jim the actors in the, who have their handprints or footprints out here who are represented, and there were two we were able to pick out pretty easily, and the third was uh, completely, uh, as a completely oblivious, you never even thought of, of again, not realizing that, that she was actually still alive. Uh, one of them was Harrison Ford, the others being? Uh, Dick Van Dyke, of course, and the the uh, wild card there, Maureen O'Sullivan, who played uh, Jane in uh, the uh, Tarzan movie. She outlived Cheetah. I, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. How about that, huh? Um, and uh, now somebody will phone into the podcast. And by the way, uh, just passed uh, away last year, uh, you know, uh, she left us. Um, and we also saw Jim Henson's uh, dated uh, 89 on, on green. And uh, the unique thing about the Jim Henson one, of course, was that was actually done in the forecourt. A lot of these uh, were done uh, by being placed on a table or up to the side having people do that and then uh, uh, planting them uh, uh, in here and uh, again a lot of the performers here did exactly what they did at the real Grauman's Chinese theater if you were a male actor you had a tendency to wear shoes that were larger than what you normally wore 
And if you were an actress, you had a tendency to wear uh, shoes that were smaller than what you usually wore. And in fact, one of the uh, um, blocks here uh, at Disney's Hollywood Studios had to be removed. It was actress Lonnie Anderson because she made such a small imprint into this that when it rained, the water would beat up there and it was so small and slight, people couldn't see it and they would be slipping, you know, uh, all over that. So there's a whole another story uh, for that. But, but you know, Lou, you teased us earlier that there's a, a reference to uh, Rocketeer outside of this park. Yeah, and you know what? There was one that I thought of that I didn't realize. It didn't kick in until after we left the location, and it didn't kick in until you said the South Seas Club. And if you go back into sci-fi, down that same hallway, one of the first little behind the plexiglass on the right-hand side is a little sort of, uh, it's either a brochure or a menu or a, a bill of, from the South Seas Club on the bottom right down below. But, but wait, there's more, because <laughs> not only are we not finished here at Hollywood Studios, there's additional references here that some people may not realize, because it's, again, it's one of our favorite overlooked attractions mm-hmm. there. But the one that I thought about, that, uh, that I told you about, outside the parks, is not one that you could see, it's one that you can hear. And the theme from the Rocketeer actually plays in Interventions Plaza during the Interventions Fountain Show. Absolutely. The James Horner music, uh, uh, absolutely wonderful. I, I, I think for a lot of people it's their, their favorite uh, James Horner uh, score. But, you know, I'm, I'm tired out. It's time for us to go grab a, a bite to eat. But I can't help feeling, Lou, that... Maybe we're missing something here at uh, at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Can, you, you know, you, you've I've obviously got brain cells that are dying every day and not being replaced. But uh, what about you? Is there some place you think we may have missed? Well, we've certainly missed again. Uh, we've we've talked and we've actually walked through virtually one of our favorite, overlooked, ever changing attractions, and that's over at Walt Disney One Man's Dream, where yet again you can find another prop from the film where you can see yet another one of the jetpacks that was used in the film. Very true. And, and again, all of these were uh, actually used in the, the film a, a, as a stunt or as a, as a hero pack or, or whatever, so there was an awful lot of them. All of them seem to have been shipped out here to uh, uh, Florida. And, and as I said, about uh, 10 years ago, a, a lot of this stuff was uh, uh, auctioned off by Disney Auctions. And, you know, nobody can know um, everything. In fact, I just discovered something new about the Rocketeer um, just a, a, a month or two ago. Uh, I had been um, under the impression that a Rocketeer animated series had been uh, pitched for Disney Afternoon because I knew that Disney Afternoon was looking for something a, a little more adult than, uh, than DuckTales or or Goof Troop, which is where gargoyles eventually developed. And so there was uh, concept art uh, that was being sold by a reputable auction house, and they identified it as concept art for a Rocketeer um, uh, television, animated television series. And since this was a reputable house, and, and I know that that's the way animation works, I, I fell into that. But again, Imagineers call this logical erroneous conclusion where where you see something and you say oh a b so it must be c 
It, not all the case. Uh, one of the biggest Rocketeer fans uh, and aficionados out there is a, a fellow who goes by the uh, um, internet name Evil Rocketeer. And uh, he was kind enough uh, to point out to me that, that no, that was actually fake art done by fans. He had notified the auction house. The auction house refused to believe him. I did some further research. Evil Rocketeer was absolutely right. In fact, he's one of the few people who can identify an authentic Rocketeer helmet because uh, just as we talked about making uh, uh, your own jetpack, there's an awful lot of fakes that are, that are out there now. And there are certain uh, things to a Rocketeer helmet, whether it's stunt or hero or whatever, um, that are unique to that. I'm not going to share that here for any of those out there listening because I'm by a, a lawyer. But um, uh, he can, he can uh, identify those things. And uh, one of the areas that we uh, bypassed because we're uh, running out of time is uh, the Hollywood uh, Backlot uh, Tour. And uh, when that opened... Uh, again, you could see on the shelves an awful lot of uh, uh, helmets and rocket packs. And, of course, as you took the tram tour, you could see the famous uh, Bulldog Cafe, actually the one used in, in the movie. You could see an autogyro. You could see the GB. Uh, the GB is the uh, uh, racing plane that uh, Cliff Secord uh, does. It's called GB because it was made by uh, Granville Brothers uh, Aircraft uh, uh, Company. But, uh, Lou, thanks for giving me a chance to talk about Rocketeer, one of my favorite films. Those of you listening, if you haven't watched it lately, uh, put it in. It, it's a fun film. It's an uplifting film. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry there, there weren't sequels. I'm with you. And, and, you know, we were talking about the, the Backlot Tour. And I was thinking back to when I wrote the... I remember when, in 91, as the film was a, a, about to premiere how much they were pushing it, even in the narration. We were talking about sort of the, the uh, automated narration versus a live cast member. The cast members talked about the film. The Bulldog Cafe was great to go by because it was that theme styling, that California crazy styling, like a Gertie the Dinosaur or the, the giant donut uh, out in California. It was actually shaped like a bulldog. The plane was out front. Uh, there were places when the Backlot Tour was really the Backlot Tour, and it was that very long com- combined walking and driving thing. There were a lot of elements there that really were making reference to the, to the Rocketeer, and we always sort of lament sometimes the losses of those stories and the details and the props and things like that. But I want to encourage listeners to not only, like you said, check out the film once again, but as you walk to the studios or maybe elsewhere in the theme parks, see if you can find references to the Rocketeers, maybe some that we missed. Maybe there's a few left over that we haven't talked about. If so, snap a photo Tweet it to me at Lou Mangello or send it to me at Lou at www.radio.com and we'll share it for others. Jim Corkish, you are, in fact, among other things, the author of The Vault of Walt, which is available on Amazon. It's in paperback. It's on Kindle. All the great formats. I'll link to it in the show notes. I want to thank you again for strolling me around or jetpacking me around, as the case may be. Uh, Hollywood Studios and uh, sort of down memory lane as we sort of look back to uh, 20 years of the Rocketeer. I, well, you're, you're more than welcome, Lou. And, and again, let me also uh, piggyback on a comment that you made there. Uh, for all those spouses who complain when you take a photo or you take a video, remind them, Disney theme parks are living entities. Things change, things move, things get removed, things get added. So it's very important, even now, not 50 years past or whatever, even now, take those pictures uh, uh, for the uh, um, 
future and for future historians. And uh, yeah, now it's time for me to, to jet off. Let me strap on this pack. I think I've got a little left. And here we go. Three, two, one, to infinity and be Oh, wait, wrong franchise. Oh, no, it's going to blow up. I'm going to miss Hollywood. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Don't forget that in addition to the podcast, we have lots going on over at www.radio.com, including our show notes where you can comment on this week's show, your thoughts about the Rocketeer, and maybe some Rocketeer items that we may have overlooked during our tour of the parks. Be sure and visit the website where you can also be involved in our discussions uh, either in the show notes, on our discussion forums. There's polls, contests, daily blog posts, and lots more. Please also call the voicemail if you want to be heard on the air at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. Or you can email me with a question you may want answered on the air at lou at wdwradio.com. In addition to the weekly podcast, be sure and come by, watch, and chat during our live video broadcasts every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern over at wdwradiolive.com. There you can be part of the conversation and the broadcast as we discuss this week's Walt Disney World news. You can ask and answer questions, but don't worry if you can't make it live. I'll post the video on youtube.com slash Radio on the WW Radio blog and I'll post the audio in the iTunes feed as well. I also want to invite you to be part of the WW Radio family and community by meeting other Disney fans on our discussion forums and in the chat or in person at our Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World Thanks to everybody who came out this past weekend during the Walt Disney World Marathon weekend. And of course, big congratulations to all of you who participated, volunteered, or cheered in the marathon. It was a great time getting to meet so many of you this past weekend in the Magic Kingdom. For more information about upcoming meets, you can stay tuned to DisneyMeets.com. The next meet in February will probably either be February 11th, which we'll be celebrating our five-year anniversary for WW Radio. We'll have something planned there for the box people that day, so you can watch live, even if you can't make it down here. Otherwise, it may be the weekend of the 25th for the Princess Marathon. Stay tuned. This week, I'll have uh, the final announcement with dates and times there. You can also follow me over on Twitter. I am at Lou Mangiello. That's the best way to get instant updates there. Or you can also come by chat with us over on Facebook at facebook.com slash Radio. Please visit celebrationspress.com to subscribe or order back issues of Celebrations Magazine. We have some exciting news coming very, very soon as far as Celebrations is concerned, so definitely stay tuned for that. And if you're looking to pick up signed copies of my Walt Disney World trivia books or my audio tours of Walt Disney World, you can visit the shop over at wdwradio.com. Quick thanks to my partners and sponsors, Mouse Fan Travel, my official recommended travel provider. It's who I use for Walt Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacations. If you're looking to come with us on our WDW Radio cruise on the Disney Dream this November, we're just under the 300-day mark. 
We still have availability in a number of different cabin categories, so you can visit www.radiocruise.com for more information and to get a free, no-obligation quote. We had a great time last year, should be even bigger and better this year, and of course, have a few surprises planned along the way. Stay tuned for more information about that coming soon as well. AllStarVacationHomes.com has more than 150 homes ranging from two-bedroom condos to nine-bedroom homes with private uh, pools and spas and kitchens and game rooms and master bedrooms, media rooms, and lots more. You can also come by and visit SwanAndDolphin.com. If you're looking to stay right in the heart of Walt Disney World, you know I love the Swan and Dolphin, not just for the great restaurants like Blue Zoo and Il Molino and Shula's, but... They also have the most comfortable heavenly beds on property, great restaurants and lounges, the Mandara Spa, and lots more. And finally, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share the link on Facebook or Google+. And please come by, rate and review the show over in iTunes. Very much appreciated as well. And finally, and most importantly, I want to thank you all once again for taking the time and tuning in for all of your support and your friendship. It means the world to me. And thank you so much for letting me share my passion for Disney with you each and every week. It is what gets me up and gets me fired up each and every day. And that's why you have to know that there's no time like right now to start pursuing your own passion. So be positive, get motivated, and follow your dreams. And when you do, always keep moving forward. I hope you have a great, great week this week, everybody. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou, it's Disney World Dave from DigitalDisneyWorld.com and a new member of the WDW radio running team and new member of the NEI and Mouse Fan Travel team. Just calling to say Happy New Year from up here in Connecticut. want to say how much I enjoyed your review of the Plaza restaurant the, uh, two shows ago with Frank. Looking forward to checking out that, uh, that Reuben that you talk about. Sounds delicious. Also want to thank you for um, putting out the great holiday edition of Celebrations. Just got that. As well as the new uh, current Celebrations magazine. The Tom Slayer Island article is fantastic. Uh, my son and I, who's five years old, love to go to Tom Slayer Island. It's a favorite place for both of us, and that article just hit home. So anyway, again, Happy New Year. Merry Christmas to you. Looking forward to seeing you next week at the marathon where I'll be running uh, my first 5K for the Dream Team. We'll talk to you soon, Lou. Hi, Lou. This is Owen Cummings uh, from Vancouver, Washington. I'm really excited about the new, good news because uh, that one more day I'm going to be down there then. But on the other hand, I'm kind of skeptical because I picked it because I thought it was going to be a low time. But um, I'm really happy that they're going to be something special for leap year. Um, thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. I enjoy your program. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hey, Lou. Um, I'm just calling to give my or what I thought about uh, one more day. Um, I think it's a really good idea. It's just bad that I probably won't be able to be there. Um, but you should definitely do a 24-hour live web chat that I could watch from my home instead of being there. Um, but yeah, I, I I was really excited, but not excited that I won't be able to be there for the 24-hour thing. It'd be amazing to be at. But I hope you can do something special for the people who can't be there. So. I think it's a great idea, and I hope you do something for it. Bye. Hey, Lou. This is Marissa Lozano from Brassburg, Indiana. Um, I'm pretty much walking around the all-star resorts enjoying my time. Just did a half marathon today. Uh, it was pretty fun. <laughs> I heard, though. And today I also met uh, Bill Blackmore. Oh, goodness, I remember 
his name wrong. Anyway, the, the Disney design artist, um, and he was really cool. And we were talking, and he gave me some really good tips. Brian Blackmore, sorry, there we go. So, I uh, love the show. Keep it up. See ya. You've got a friend.